God rest you, merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. You're listening to Tasting Together, Toronto's news, today's talk, 640 Toronto. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. I'm Maroki Tong, and I'm here with always with Andre Prue. Hello. Hey, Andre. Hello. <laughs> How's it going? It's going. It's going. Oh, my God. One week left. Yeah, what are we listening to right now? This is, I mean, definitely iconic Christmas, but it's it doesn't have that same feeling of Alan Rickman's surprised face falling off the Nakatomi Plaza. It's true, and it probably doesn't have the intense peppiness of Mariah Carey either. Um, so I grew up singing in choirs. I was raised Catholic, um, although I would say I've not been a practicing Catholic since the age of nine, the moment I went to a private school. But I did sing in choirs my entire life, and I will say that God rest you, merry gentlemen, um, for all its religious connotations, is one of my favorite holiday songs. I just think it's very pretty and... I like the chords that the song is set in, and the anyway. I'm getting no. It's we're getting super music nerd on that though. It's uh, but I know, but I love it. I mean, it's um, it's exactly like in the movie Elf. The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. And I I think Christmas spirit is just something about it in the air this year. I think the fact that this is our first like post pandemic. I know it's not like officially over, and uh, you know, get vaccinated, whatever the case may be. Uh, take care of your family but this does feel like the first normal Christmas in like three years it's true I, I mean a lot of the events that have not been happening for the last two years are just coming back this year I mean I even attended one um, last Friday uh, the social herbivore put on event spreading some plant-based cheer yeah pairing with some delicious vegan wines and they said it was their first one back and everyone was just so excited to be back you know can um, can Andre, you give a sorry can you give a bit of a shout out to um I, i'll say she's a friend of the program even though we haven't had her on but priya rao who's who is the social herbivore um i'd like to think that in 2022 we're well past the point of treating vegans like punchlines and there is some outstanding vegan food out there and uh the social herbivore is definitely a great place to learn about how exciting vegan cuisine can be of course. And the other half of the social herbivore is Jen Huther, who is actually Canada's first female master sommelier. So um, quite a powerhouse woman right there. And what the thing is, is that there's a lot of wines out there that are vegan. And everyone thinks, oh, is is all wine vegan? And it isn't because a lot of wine is actually filtered through um, animal products like fish bladders or pig's bladders. And, and that's standard. Yeah. Um, that's actually, you know, standard practice for wines. Um, of course, there are. You know, that's that's you something know, for anyone who that's yeah, something we should definitely dive into. We should definitely dive into that maybe a little bit more in depth in the new year, just about the winemaking process. Because I know there's a bit of kerfuffle in the wine world about potentially listing ingredients on the back of bottles. But um, there's a lot of really on the surface sound like kind of gnarly things that go into winemaking. But yeah, let's let's touch on that at a later time. Well, last week we talked about wacky pairings like pairing ice wine with fried chicken and scotch with pie. And if anyone's interested in catching our previous episodes, they can do so on the globalnews.ca slash Toronto website. But Andre, are we gluttons for punishment or something and, and loving of weird things? Because you brought up a, a holiday food that 
is also considered pretty divisive and you really wanted to dig into it this week. I'm not sure that I'm necessarily a glutton for punishment, but it's one of these things where like, especially now that I have young nephews and, you know, I, I have a lot of children in my life, I always find it fascinating to see how the mind of a child works in terms of picky eaters. But I, I don't mind being around grown-ups that I would consider to be picky eaters. I'm the farthest thing from a picky eater. There are very few things on the planet that I won't eat. But I, I'm always just so curious about the whys. And Christmas just seems to really bring out that divisiveness in people. And our, our banner product at this time of year is fruitcake. I remember the worst one I had. I think just straight up had gummies inside of it. I'm that, actually is that a style. Yeah, I, I was actually surprised because I'm just taking a look. You, you and I, like we do show prep separately. Like we'll both make some notes and then bring them together when we put the show together. Um, I think I need to make some fruit cake for you. Gummies belong in fruit cake. Um, it's it's like specific gumdrops. They have a firmer texture. Like I'm not talking about using like gummy worms or colas or you know the the fuzzy peaches that you get. Like there's a very specific like traditional type of gummy that belongs in fruitcake in my opinion i know what you're talking about but i've had fruitcake since then that i have enjoyed i actually do like fruitcake and what i have found is that what they usually put inside is maraschino cherries or some Yum. sort of so yeah good. like dried marinade cherry but but not gummies and i almost I, I i got the sense this is this is me and my you know someone who's not grown up with fruitcake I thought that the gummies on inside the fruitcake were actually the cheap out version of what the genuine, authentic expression of what fruitcake should be, which would be using maraschino or dried cherries in the cake. You know, regardless of what is in fruitcake, I know two truths are eternal when it comes to this particular Christmas delicacy. Actually, let's add three truths. One, Andre will eat fruitcake from anywhere, anytime, any place. Two, it will be the most divisive Christmas treat that you will serve to your family. And number three, every grandma on this planet thinks their recipe is the best and they're all right. Um, but moving off of fruitcake, something else that's quite divisive. And one of my favorite treats at Christmas is eggnog. I love eggnog, but I do remember a lot of people had less than stellar opinions about it. And I never understood why. I mean, it is something where when you're a kid, this is one thing where I can get into the head of a, a picky eater. Like the French word for eggnog is lait de poule, which means chicken milk. And I mean, oh. is the thought of chicken milk something that is really appealing? And, you know, the thought of like eating and drinking drinks with raw egg is something that is still a little bit strange, even though like I love cocktails that have that you know, egg whitey foamy goodness on it. It's still just like it's a weird thing to get used to, don't you think? I wonder if this is where there's a bit of a cultural difference growing up because when we grew up eating hot pot, um, one mm -hmm. of the sauces that we make is we whisk raw egg with soy sauce and spices and what have you and dipped all our cooked products into it from, from our hot pot. And there is a, a Vietnamese drink um, that's pretty commonly served if you go to a pho place or, or a Vietnamese restaurant where you essentially have a bit of condensed milk, club soda, and egg, and you just pour, you just kind of pour it all in and stir it all up with your straws. Oh, so interesting. For me, egg was just always something that meant it has a little bit of body, a little bit of fat in it. And eggnog just seemed like, you know, the holiday version of all of that. 
I I love like now that we're seeing people experimenting with all sorts of spirits. I know for my family growing up, it was um, rum and eggnog. Um, and actually, it's one of my my fondest memories. I, I remember being about seventeen years old. Um, we had the whole family together, whole extended family together for Christmas. And my grandmother, who was this mild mannered, soft spoken woman, completely a saint, told me at seventeen that you can drink as much rum and eggnog as you like because eggnog absorbs the alcohol from the rum trust me it doesn't but this is the first and only time i saw my grandmother get hammered oh my god (laughs) i love that so much that brings me so much joy and i wish my grandparents were still alive so that i could try that on um you know for a long time i actually had to give up eggnog because my lactose intolerance was at an all-time high and it is so wonderful now that there are ready-made products that are you know eggnog that is dairy free i think so good actually releases a straight up like coconut milk or soy milk um dairy free eggnog product and eric's mom being jewish and bless her even made me a non-dairy version from scratch and it was delicious coming from a jewish family it was great you know, I, I know so many Jewish families just love to get into the, the festivities for Christmas. But coming up after the break, we are going to focus on some Jewish traditions. Because this is something where, as we've mentioned in the past, I, I come from Western Canada and did not grow up with a large Jewish community in the uh, the wonderful province of Saskatchewan. And that's something that we have a very strong presence of in Toronto and in the GTA. And we will be joined by Jenna Steckel, who is of Jewish descent and also the chef and owner of XOBZU, a fantastic pastry shop and sandwich shop in downtown Toronto. So stick around. We'll see you shortly on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. I'm your host, Andre Prue, and I am joined by my co-host, Maroki Tong. And Maroki, we've talked about it a few times on the show that your partner, Eric, is uh, Jewish. And uh, we've talked about how I've been fortunate enough to attend a Passover Seder with you and Eric and your family. But I have to admit that as a very white Christian boy who grew up in Saskatchewan, I just was not exposed to a lot of Jewish traditions that I think we really have access to in Toronto. So I'm going to hand this segment over to you to set up what we're talking about and our guests, and I'm sure I'll have a bunch of questions. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, Andre, until I started dating Eric, I myself have not been super exposed to Jewish traditions either. And strangely enough, there were actually quite a number of Jewish kids in my school growing up, but they were all in my sister's grades. So all my sisters got to attend the bar mitzvah and the bar mitzvahs, and I did not. I <laughs> still yet to attend my first one. Um, but we are, you know, Hanukkah begins tomorrow, and I will be celebrating with Eric and his family. His family's from the States, but his parents are coming up to see his sister um, because his sister's daughter is actually having her naming ceremony, which I believe is also a Jewish tradition. But joining us today is Jenna Steckel, the pastry chef and owner of ExoBizun Toronto to bring us all the skinny on Jewish traditions. Hey, Jenna. Hi there. How are you? We're amazing. But before we get into some questions about uh, some of the Jewish traditions, I know your shop um, in particular 
does celebrate the Jewish holidays with some fantastic dishes. I would love to hear from you. I know there's certain foods that I've eaten with Eric's family, but I want to hear from you. What would you prepare for a Hanukkah feast? So at Exabizu, we offer uh, several different items for Hanukkah. Uh, the, we offer lekkas, we do some cookie kits for kids. Um, we're offering brisket this year, just as a uh, family meal sort of thing. And uh, I think we are also going to be offering sufganyot, which are jelly donuts. Um, so the story of Hanukkah is basically that th it was a miracle that the oil lasted eight days. So basically for eight days you're supposed to eat deep fried foods um oh my god yes <laughs> that that was the tradition i heard of too and when andre first asked me like what are some foods that you would eat for hanukkah outside of latkes which i think a lot of people are aware of i i said to him i think all the fried things with as much oil as possible and as you said, it was the, you know, it was representative of the miracle that this oil that was only supposed to burn for one day, I guess they only had enough. It miraculously burned for eight days when they rededicated the Holy Temple of Jerusalem after overcoming oppression. So um, I, I know latkes is a really big one. And the first year Eric made latkes on his own, he hand grated everything like he thought it was like a rite of passage. He had to hand grate all the potatoes. <laughs> and, I still uh, you still do that? Oh I my do. god! I was gonna say they. I was gonna say that since then the food processor has been always at play. Wait. So when you um, when you hand grate the potatoes, is this for what you do at Exobizu, or is this what you um what you serve at home for your family? Uh, actually, at Exobizu, we we do hand grate our potatoes. I actually find that the texture when you use the food processor is just not as like you don't get that classic you know, shredded potato um, that you grew up with. I don't know. There's something about using the food processor to me that feels like I'm cheating. Oh, that's amazing and kind of crazy, but also amazing. Yeah, you guys probably have like forearms of steel by the end. <laughs> we, we do a lot of hand grating. So, uh, yes, we have some sharp graters and uh, it does go quickly. We, we typically, um, we do both the potatoes and onions by hand. Now, we spent a bit of time here talking about latkes. Would you say that latkes are as synonymous with Hanukkah as, let's say, turkey would be with Christmas? Or is there something else that is sort of like the the cornerstone or like the essential part of the dinner around that time of year? So, latkes are Hanukkah. Uh, the jelly donut, which I, I had mentioned before, is called um, sufganyot. And uh, the classic jelly donut is also something that every family eats on Hanukkah. You know, now people fill them with custard and Nutella and a little fancier, but the classic strawberry jelly donut covered with powdered sugar is every family eats on Hanukkah. That sounds so good. You mentioned brisket as well. And I believe I also have that pretty regularly with Eric's family. Do you find that that's also the standard meat dish that is presented around Hanukkah? Uh, so it's funny, I actually think that brisket is eaten multiple times in J Jewish families throughout the year for holiday occasions. I think that <laughs> brisket was originally it was like an inexpensive cut of meat that was always really tough. And uh, we 
slow cook brisket for eight hours till it falls apart and it's delicious. Like sort of taking something that no one generally uses like the highest quality of brisket and we just slow cook it with strawberry jelly and sauteed onions. And uh, yeah, that's like a classic. I've heard you know, some of cater, some people you know. who use like Coca-Cola as well in their brisket seasoning. Is that something you've heard of? I have heard of that. So there's always, I, I find that there's always a sweet element. So whether you're using jelly or Coca-Cola, um, it, it adds like that, you know, caramelization to the meat. Um, personally, I, I don't use the Coca-Cola, but I, I do know lots of people who do. And, and let's just take a quick moment to lament the price of brisket these days because i remember when i first got my smoker about six years ago i could still find it for like two three bucks a pound and now it's a struggle to find it under five dollars a pound yes yeah i mean the cost of everything has gone up exponentially but i think the original feeling towards brisket was like you know you take this piece of meat that is not the best and you know most people could afford at the time um and you turn it into this delicious thing so whether you you know you're smoking a brisket which takes you 12 hours um it's like you know you got to put a lot of love into that meat to make it taste good it's so funny because um having not really grown up with brisket and seeing that it's often a product that requires as you said many many hours of work i've always considered it a pretty high-end product because i'm like something that requires so much love put into it and to make it delicious must be worth so much money on the other end of it so um that's the way i've perceived brisket growing up and i will say that the best best brisket i've ever had to date probably comes from eric's mother's hands so <laughs> well, you we need, have it. Um, well you need to get your hand on the exo bizu brisket jenna how can people order their hanukkah dinner from you so we use an online ordering platform um through ambassador so you can go to their website directly or you can visit our website at www.exobizu.com and hit the uh, little ambassador widget and it will take you directly to our order page. As we wrap up the se segment, Jenna, what I do want to ask you is what are your favorite toppings for latkes? So the classic latke toppings are applesauce or sour cream. I am personally an applesauce person. Um, but, you know, as times have modernized, People now take latkes and they do brunch platters. They do them with like smoked salmon and cream cheese. Oh, geez, that sounds um, amazing. It's incredible. Um, it's very, you know, you're you're having a very decadent treat when you do things like uh, that. But the classic, the classic Hanukkah toppings are applesauce or sour cream. Well, Jenna, thank you so much for giving us the time and educating us and the listeners about all things Hanukkah. And um, I, what is it? Happy Hanukkah. Yes, it is. Happy Hanukkah. Well, Thank happy you. Hanukkah. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I will speak to you all soon. Take care. Speaking of traditions and things we grew up with coming up after the break, we're going to talk about some of the local attractions that are happening around town and ones that we grew up with and whether good food or drink needs to be a part of that experience. So stick around. We'll see you after the break on 640 Toronto. <laughs> You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's News, Today's Talk. 640 Toronto.
Welcome back to Tasting Together. I'm your host, Andre Peru. I'm joined by my co-host, Maroki Tong. And there's this trend that I've seen popping up on social media. And I'm not, it's one of these things where I'm not sure if it's real or not. Like we talked a, a bit last week about, you know, the pilk campaign of Pepsi talking about mixing Pepsi with milk or Hellman's doing their mayonnaise eggnog cocktail. And it's just like, I don't think anybody does these trends, but this one seems to be picking up some steam. Have you seen the butterboards, Maroki? I have so many opinions about the butterboards and none of them good. Well, let's first off, let's describe to the listeners what a butterboard is. It is essentially, um, if you think about a charcuterie board and you are putting cheese and meats on this lovely wooden handcrafted board that you probably bought from a vendor at an art show, take all of that meat and cheese off and spread butter all over it instead and maybe some garnishes and dressings and flavors and then you will now serve that to your guests so that they can take their cracker or bread vessels and smear slash scoop slash scrape the butter off the butterboard onto said vessel okay i mean it sounds certainly strange to me i'm I'm definitely skeptical of that uh, what are your thoughts on the butterboard maroki I mean, I think if you can tell from my sarcastic tone, probably nothing good. <laughs> the, the thing is, even the Food Network jumped on it. They actually wrote a whole article about making a great butterboard and how it's a, an excellent alternative way to serve things to your guests. But honestly, I on top of, I'm just not sure how you can possibly clean your, you know, nice raw wood charcuterie board. With all that grease off of it, yeah. Yeah, I just I just don't know how you could ever probably remove everything off the board. Um I don't think people eat that much butter. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. No, I'd agree with that. It's like a lot of butter to go on a board and I think it's I think it's probably gonna you're probably end up wasting a lot of butter too. Like put you know, if you put it in uh you know, the traditional way of serving butter, which is either in a little bowl or in little you know individual ball shapes i think there's less chance of waste versus it getting smeared all over the board and you wouldn't want to kind of keep any of it when it's done once everyone's done picking at it andre i i, I just, i'm just ready to do it with the butterboard trend I'm, I'm with you on that and i think it's one of those things too where it's actually one of the problems about dairy in canada and that's not saying that we don't have great milk on the market in canada but it's just Things like butter are something where we don't have a lot of variety and really good butter is something that you need to go out of your way to get. So to first off, get a pound of butter that you would really notice those exquisite like dairy flavors, you know, things like cows from the from the East Coast come to mind. Um, it, it's just like it's why would you want to risk wasting a bunch of premium butter if you're spending seven, eight, nine dollars for a pound or a half pound of butter? And it's just like, I'm taking a look at, at how the toppings are presented in this. Like you talked about, potentially damaging a really nice charcuterie board, the cleanup, the waste. I think anything I've seen that can go on a butterboard would do just fine in a really nice wheel of baked brie. And frankly, you can get more bang for your buck these days in terms of dollars spent to fancy up a wheel of cheese, throw it in the oven and dip your bread in a nice ooey gooey, cheesy ball of goodness. It's true. And thinking about melted wheels of brie, I wonder if they serve things like that at the Christmas markets at the distillery district or, you know, the Chris Kindle market in Kitchener right now. Because, Andre, when I tend 
events like that, you know, Christmas markets or activities around Toronto, for me, food is part of that experience. Totally. Totally. No, I, I agree with yeah. you on that. And, you know, and sticking on the on the topic of, of cheese, I mean, one thing that I've seen starting to pop up um, is raclette is becoming something a little bit more and more popular, but I'm not sure they're serving that at any uh, at any local Christmas market, certainly not yet that I've seen. I'm not sure, but I, yeah, and I'm thinking about the Wheel of Brie, but I definitely know, you know, when you go to the Christmas markets, you can expect to get some, something really warm and, and lovely and, you know, gooey, often from a stall, at least between some buns to just warm up your, you know, warm up your body and soul when you're walking around and maybe enjoy it with a cup of mulled wine. But I know someone who attended Illumi in Mississauga recently, and they, yes. the feedback I heard was that the event was cool, but the food was meh. And Andre, do you think that's okay? You think if someone's going to an event that has a lot of bells and whistles and spectacle that it's okay if the food is not the centerpiece? You know, I think it depends on the on the scope of an event. But if you're running something where you're expecting people to be there over the meal periods, whether that's lunch or dinner, here we are in 2022 where there are so many fantastic mobile options, food trucks that will be ready at the drop of a hat that are begging for places to... Um, to serve their wares, um, you know, I, I really don't think you have much of an excuse to not have something decent at a large event, especially if we're talking about like 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 a large event. This Illumi event is quite big, from my understanding. Um, but I, I do think we need to ask a question. So, what what were they serving? Like, do you know exactly what they were serving that your friend wasn't okay with? I think it was just like pizza, you know, just. I guess like quote unquote cafeteria food, maybe just pizza, fries, something that is easily accessible, doesn't cost too much money yeah. to procure and resell. It might, you know, I don't, I don't think it was anything. At least he described it wasn't anything special. Yeah, clearly a memorable experience for your memorable experience for your friend to get into that detail on it. Um, you know, it's it's just it's so difficult, and I think people are so hungry to find things to do with the family. I know we 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 hint at this a lot, like it's clear that you and I are both excited to be living in a post pandemic world and get back to socializing, seeing friends and, and visiting these events that when a big part of the event doesn't live up, it does kind of sting a little where it's just like, come on, we haven't been able to do stuff like this for like two years. Like put, put some effort into it. Although I wonder if that's maybe because we're gourmands and yes, my friend's okay. a gourmand as well. And maybe that's just not something for everyone. Like I know when I, um, I used to go tree cutting, you know, for like a live Christmas tree at the farms. Part of the experience was just to enjoy something warm by the, out, you know, the big outdoor fires after cutting down a tree or just the fact that you're inside a nice, you know, warm setting inside. You're not sitting outside by the fire. You're sitting, you're cozying up inside with a styrofoam cup of powdered hot apple cider. And you're just happy that it, it's in your hands. It's free. And, you know, it's just warm. And honestly, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm super honest, I don't think I taste things properly when I'm really cold anyway. I'm just happy to have something of, you know, warm temperature in my hands and people there for, for the experience. The experience is to cut down the tree and everything else was just sort of a bonus. Man, but you... maybe that's because that has that like wildlife camp vibe to it. So you feel okay eating, you know. Well, you bring powdered... up an interesting, you bring up a really interesting point. Like the moment you said powdered apple cider, I just had this like vivid memory of um, tobogganing as a child 
where I know that that was one of the things that we used to have in the house. And it's just like, I haven't had powdered apple cider in years. And I, I think you do raise an interesting question about the definition of good. You and I are gourmand. I'm sure there's some people in the car who've been listening to the show for a few weeks who might consider us snobs. That's okay. I'm okay to own that term. But I, I mean, you and I have a certain standard when we go. And we go to a lot of events that generally revolve around wine. And I think it's an expectation if you're going to a wine event that the food be good. But I mean, does that nostalgia take this food that is objectively, you know, fairly economical? I'll bet you the powdered apple cider, nothing even resembling close to a real apple on a tree has been anywhere near it. But does that make it, and I'm putting this in air quotes, bad? Um, Because, I mean, I have nothing but positive memories about that, or or powdered hot chocolate, or, you know, I remember the vending machines at hockey rinks as a kid watching my brother play, uh, where I would get the chicken soup just to be different, because I, you know, I thought it was cool you could get chicken soup from a vending machine. It was literally just, you know, probably nor chicken broth that was served in in a paper cup well memory matters right because if you refer to the movie ratatouille uh there's that moment when the critic anton ego is being served ratatouille as the dish and he's eating it it's quote-unquote called the peasant's dish and they question serving it to him but he drops his fork he's sent back to his childhood when his mother's serving it to him he's you know the food is bringing him to tears i mean memory clearly has a large impact in how we interpret um, what is good in cuisine. And I actually have this memory now of going, you know, this, the place where I used to ski at, they served these curly fries and it was just served at a kiosk in their chalet. And I, I, I don't know if they served anything else, but all I remember was those curly fries and they, I will still fight to this day that they are the best dang fries I've ever had. You know, it's just funny, the power of the French fry in those crappy deep fryers that likely were seldom cleaned in arenas and ski chalets across country um flavor (laughs) something like that so here we are we've been teasing it for weeks it's finally time for me to talk about my disdain about pairing wine with turkey i'm excited I'm you not. You guys want to stick around for this. <laughs> you guys want to stick around for this. So we'll see you shortly after the break on 640 Toronto. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. I'm Maroki Tong and I am joined with my co-host Andre Pru. And now coming in from the newsroom is Danny Longo. Danny, Andre and I have been pushing this off for a little while now, um, mostly because Andre is extremely against it. We are going to talk about the turkey and wine pairings. What do you think? What do I think? Okay. Um, Well, I mean, there's a few different things you can do here. My go-to for turkey, and I I think a lot of it has to do with the way you prepare the turkey. If there's a lot of spices, you might want to go red. I tend to stick to that turkey and i go with whites so i like a good riesling usually with my turkey or maybe a chardonnay and if i'm feeling crazy um or if someone brought it maybe some champagne usually white and if i do have to go red maybe a pinot noir nice all right all right so what's my beef with wine and turkey i mean this is one of these Mm -hmm. things where uh, I think I'm just a little bit cynical because I've been writing about wine for a long time. I, I, I first started in 2010 
And I just remember those first few years, it's sort of like, it's one of those things where you're obligated to do it as a wine writer, where you need to find that perfect wine to go with the turkey spread. And, you know, I've been on television talking about it. I've done radio hits across the whole country talking about it. And a few years ago, another wine writer uh, based in St. Catharines, he focuses a lot on Ontario wine, Rick Van Sickle. Uh, Wines in Niagara is a quick shout out if you're looking for some great Niagara wine recommendations. He posted a video online where uh, I think he's even more cynical than I am, or it's just like maybe some of his mild tongue-in-cheek grinchiness wore off on me. And, <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things where like it, it sort of burst a bubble in my head because I think about my own family and my own situation because usually when you get uh, the family together for Turkey, there's quite a few people there. And you know what? I've been the guy where like I've brought that perfect Chardonnay. I've brought that perfect Pinot Noir or Gamay. Like these are all wines that go really well with Turkey. But no matter what I would bring for the family, inevitably I would have, you know, Aunt Betty show up with a bottle of uh, Argentinian Malbec where... I don't think that's a great pairing or Australian Shiraz showing up. Um, and it's just the point that Rick makes in the video is that wine and turkey pairings are fairly moot. Because if we actually take a moment and think about it, I, I think we've all talked about it on the show before that we this is not me saying anything bad about the turkey spread because I love the turkey spread. I'm the dude who cooks 10 turkeys a year. But mashed potatoes, stuffing, gravy... You know, even sweet potatoes or, or green peas on the side. We're not talking about like pyrotechnical use of spices here. There's no cumin. You know, there's no cardamom. <laughs> there's none of those like really difficult flavors that can be fussy to find the right wine pairing with. The flavor profile is quite bland and quite fatty. And virtually every wine on the planet will pair with that. And I sat and I thought about them. She's like, man. I think Rick's kind of right. And then even if everything does pair with it, you're going to inevitably end up with a family member who's going to pair something that doesn't go with it and they're going to enjoy the crap out of it anyways. So ever since then, I've stopped talking about wine and turkey pairings. But didn't you literally just say that you think Argentinian Malbec does not pair well with turkey? I plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> So, I, think I mean, you have an opinion. And I think, you know, we've discussed this before when we talk, <laughs> you know, when we talked about our wacky pairings last week, that there's always opportunities for things to be unconventional and that people may enjoy a pairing that you may not necessarily enjoy. And that's just the given. But that doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that we shouldn't um, make an attempt, especially <laughs> when people ask us as, you know, wine enthusiasts and as wine advocates and experts to provide what, you know, what would be a really good fair shake at a good pairing, right? As you described, fair. It's fat. There's fatty foods, or you know, as as Danny described, you know, like there. Even Danny provided several different options, right? Riesling, Chardonnay, and Champagne. And if I wanted to break those down specifically, and I've paired all, actually all three of those with with Turkey myself, right? Champagne, very high acid, bubbly. It's light. It's fizzy. It can kind of lift up. Um, and cut through the fats. Um, and I would say similarly was Riesling, Riesling being a higher you know, acid. If, if I can throw like a, a tiny interjection just about champagne, I think it's just one of those things where people don't think about champagne and, and great sparkling wine in general as food wine. But to be blunt, that high acid in champagne generally has it pairing with, with most things you can put on the table. I think it's just because it's so expensive. You don't think about, about putting it on the table next to your food. You want to savor it separate from everything but champagne and turkey okay you're pulling me well, in you're pulling me in i'm i i, I hate to say this but champagne and turkey is a great 
pairing. And if you love your family a lot, spend the extra bucks on proper champagne. Well, that's mm-hmm. just it. That's why that's why I brought it up because usually, you know, at Christmas or at Thanksgiving or you know one of these big holidays or Easter or whatever, when we do have turkey, someone almost always, you know, will whoever's hosting will have a bottle of champagne and it's on the table and it's like, okay, yeah, why not? And it's like let's let's see how this tastes and usually it's pretty good. And another I like one it. I didn't mention was uh, Sauvignon Blanc, which is also a decent white wine to have with uh, with turkey. Sauvignon Blanc from where? Oh gosh, I don't know, California. Good oh man. no, good man, no. <laughs> no. Oh right, you and I, you and I are like think I think polar opposites on this Maroki, right? I well, I'm not a Sauvignon Blanc drinker, so I will fully admit my my particular bias, and I. And um, you know what? I, I should I should take that back because Sauvignon Blanc from California likely will have more tropical fruit notes, which I do enjoy. And um, I think I was leaning towards Sancerre and I might have just had a gut reaction mm. when you said California. Mm. I was like, no, I will come back to you with Sancerre <laughs> instead, <laughs> which is from France. For, for those of you who are not familiar with Sancerre as a region. Yeah, it's one of those um, things that, where, where like Sauvignon Blanc has been, uh, I think, for new wine drinkers, the whole idea of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc kind of dominates what people are familiar with. But Sauvignon Blanc is a, a cool grape where it really does taste like where it's grown, whether it's Sancerre or, or in the Loire Valley in France versus California versus New Zealand. Like the really great Sauvignon Blanc regions have their own thing going on. But that is a tangent off of the topic about how I hate talking about wine in Turkey. And yet here we are. And you've <laughs> made me throw like three recommendations out so far, I think. Mm-hmm. And maybe I wanted to just call back to the reds. I know, yes. um, Danny, you mentioned Pinot Noir, which I think would be a good pairing as a as a lighter bodied red. And uh, Andre, you mentioned Gamay. And I think I actually recommended Gamay to a friend who was asking me for a red wine turkey pairing this past Thanksgiving. So you and I are on the same page with regards to, you know, this kind of Ugh. fruity, lighter, lighter red as well. So there we go. We have and white Chianti, and red pairing. And Chianti. Chianti, like a lighter bodied italian red that has oh, some yes. like nice savory notes that will literally dovetail with the turkey spread um and i mean it'll be really fun to open up a chianti with the family and make those hannibal lecter references and uh, <laughs> uh I, kicking andre, and screaming I think you're gonna have the andre i think you're gonna have to send the segment to to rick when this is all after our <laughs> conversation here <laughs> All right, all right. Yeah, lots can, of options. If we can step off of specifically the wine and um, turkey, tomorrow is the first day of Hanukkah. We've spent a little bit of time talking about that earlier on the show, and learning about the deep fried goodness that is this holiday definitely has me in the mood to uh, partake in some of the culinary celebrations for Hanukkah. And I know last week we talked about ice wine with deep fried goodness. But Maroki, what do you have in mind in terms of wine pairings for latkes, maybe? Champs. Champs? Okay, so we're we're doing champagne with everything. Uh. I know. I mean, champagne (laughs) is such a great pairing with, you know, when we were talking about fats, obviously with latkes and uh, probably with the souf gagnot as well. And... I also, I was also thinking, you know, rosé. I think rosé oh, would be super fun. Oh, it's about time someone I, mentioned rosé. I can't uh, believe I knew that. It's the thing about being in this part of December. A lot of people have squirreled their rosé away from the summer. Um, I, I I make a little bit of rosé with my small business in Niagara. And uh, I'm a year-round rosé drinker, partly because it's just always in my house. <laughs> if we're drinking white wines in the winter, we can drink rosé in the winter. 
We definitely can. Or we can get the best of both worlds and get some uh, rosé champagne. Ooh. Ooh. Bringing in all the options there. Yeah, I would say that those are probably my favorites. I think there's obviously, like, when it comes to pairing with fried foods, there's just anything with higher acid will benefit. Um, but my go-tos, I think, will be something sparkly and something rosé. And maybe I'll throw a white in there. Who knows? I know Eric's family are lovers of red wine, but I have converted them over to white. So maybe I'll make it a white rosé-centric meal. That sounds great to me. And I think on that note, it's time to sign off for another week of Tasting Together. Thanks to Danny Longo for joining us. Thanks to Jenna yeah. Steckel from XOBZU for joining us earlier in the show. And uh, as always, thanks to the listeners for tuning in. Until next week. We're Tasting Together on 640 Toronto.